Good morning. Welcome to Taproot. My name is Tracy, and I will be reading God's word for us today. Um, when I finish, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and as a church, we prayerfully respond with, Speak, Lord, your servants here. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is such a high calling, and none of us have met it or will meet it in the days to come in perfectness, <laughs> without fault. Um, but you've given us your spirit to enable us to live this out more and more. And I pray that that spirit today would merge with our spirits and help us um, yield to you and to the work you want to do specifically in each one of our lives today. I pray for Mike that you would empower his words um, and that you would be glorified in our time together today. 
Amen. Oh, how's everyone doing? Good. Everyone feeling maybe like mildly depressed this morning after a week of... I, no, I'm with you, Tracy. I'm with you. The fog. Like it just feels like this like pressure, right? That's how I feel. I'm trying, I was driving and I was like, I'm, I'm happy about the fog. I'm happy. Uh, it was good. We, did, we, I, we got to go up to Pomerel and ski the other day. And if you're, if you're looking for sun... It's up there. <laughs> uh, beautiful, sunny, warm, all sorts of good things. Uh, with that, let's just get into this. I only have uh, 45-ish minutes to preach this sermon. So if you're wondering, like, 45 minutes, that's a lot, right? No, it's not. Um, it's never been done in the history of Tapper Church. So uh, if you are a guest with us, my name is Mike, and uh, we're glad to have you. We are into week two of a seven or eight or nine week membership series. And what we're, what we're doing is just kind of reassessing what it means to be a member in Taproot Church and why uh, local church membership is important. And the way that uh, we work through membership is uh, we've built it around our core values. So that's kind of uh, what we're working through. Last week, uh, we just did an introduction, uh, really just kind of a argument, if you will, for membership and the importance of local church membership. And uh, part of what we had talked about there um, was just really that, that there's just basic wisdom to membership. So we, we, we live in a world where we're 2,000 plus years removed from the birth of the church. And so what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, is, is often convoluted. It's, it's confused. Uh, it's just misunderstood. And so in membership, what we're trying to do is just kind of embrace this reality. We're, we're understanding uh, that we don't have maybe as clear a picture of what it means to be committed to Jesus and to a local church as the earliest disciples did. And so a membership covenant helps us to communicate what that looks like. That's in part what it does. Uh, furthermore, membership clarifies responsibility regarding oversight. So it tells us as elders, as leaders in the church, who are we responsible for in the local church? We're not responsible for every Christian who exists. We're not responsible for every Christian who lives uh, in Twin Falls or in the Magic Valley or, or just anyone who goes to church. That's not our oversight. Um, it's just the local church and specifically members within that local church. It also tells us as members um, who we're accountable to uh, as far as our leaders go and as far as other members in the local church as well. So it just gives some clarity um, as far as that goes. And, uh, and then as well within membership, what we're doing is we're willingly subjecting ourselves to authority outside of ourselves. And so in particular, uh, we're subjecting ourselves, we're submitting ourselves to the authority of God ultimately uh, and also to the structure of the local church. And we do this uh, for our good. We believe that as we uh, submit ourselves to authority outside of ourselves, that it actually enables us to have more freedom uh, than we otherwise would on our own. And so there's a lot of health that is, is possible to come out of membership. And of course, like anything else, it can be uh, misused and abused. That's not what we're shooting for, though. Amen? Amen. So where we're at this morning, and, and just so you know, in regards to the questions, if you have questions about last week's um, sermon, feel free to, to throw those up there as well. Um, if, if you have a question that tries to get ahead of where we are, I'll probably ignore that one uh, kindly and then move on. So if you want to stay focused on kind of where we've been and kind of where we're at. So this morning, um, here's where we're at. As a local church, Taproot Church Twin Falls, our overall reason for existence is this, is we exist to know Jesus and make him known. So that's the, the overarching uh, 
motivator for us. We as a people want to know Jesus more, and we, we believe that that's of utmost importance, and, and we have to get the order of things right, because often it's easy to uh, attempt to do things for Jesus before we learn how to be with Jesus and just know Jesus. And so the motivation for all that we do is that we know Jesus. And so all that we do is built around getting to know Jesus more. And then from knowing Jesus, uh, we'll actually want to make Jesus known. Like he's just, he's just that good. We'll want to make Jesus known uh, to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, so on and so forth. That's just the guiding direction overall for our church. But within that, or under that reason for existence, we have five core values. So our first core value is the authority of Scripture. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we also have the centrality of the Gospels, number two. Number three is the spirit and prayer-led life. Number four is the simplicity of the local church. And number five is the flourishing of humanity, I believe is what we're going to be uh, calling the fifth one. So uh, that's, that's where we're headed. Today's focus is the authority of Scripture, Cap. And so when we look at the authority of Scripture, uh, what, we, what we're doing is we're saying that Scripture is the foundation for how we live as followers of Jesus. And so the, the Bible is not just uh, a book that's there to decorate our tables or our bookshelves. We actually believe that it is the living, active Word of God. And so when we try to... Uh, give direction and, and clarify who we are and what we do and why we do it. And uh, when we encourage each other, when we rebuke each other, we're going to go to Scripture. Uh, that is the foundation for everything that we do. And, and so we believe that we're intended to live by this reality. And this is what Jesus did. Right? Jesus would say in, in Matthew 4, I think, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus himself uh, lived in accordance with what Scripture said. Uh, Jesus also, also said at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount that the person who hears these words of mine, that is, the person who hears Scripture and does them, is the person who lives a flourishing life. So, yes, the Bible is a really big deal for us. And so it's important for us to understand why. Jesus lived his life with Scripture as the foundation. We must do so as well. And so this morning, we want to work out what we mean by the authority of Scripture and how we can become more intentional students of Scripture. And that's, that's primarily what I want to work out for us, is, is what does it look like for us to, to study and handle Scripture well? If, if this is the foundation for our lives, then every single one of us uh, has the ability um, and... and should be able to learn how to study Scripture. Okay, so for our time this morning, uh, we have three points. Yes. Uh, number one, we're just going to look at how the Scriptures are powerful. Number two, the Scriptures are complex. And number three, the Scriptures are cherished. And uh, like, I've, like we said last week, Romans 12 is our, our jumping off point. Right? And so just read with me again there, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as we get into this. It says, I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is saying, in light of all that I've said in Romans 1 through 11, right, and all of the, in light of all of the good things that Jesus has done, this, this, therefore, is my appeal to you, to live your lives in this way. And then he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so here's the question. How then, how do we transform 
our minds? How, how are we going to constantly be experiencing renewal and transformation? Well, I think the answer is to, to start thinking differently. And the way that we start thinking differently is by opening this and having our minds uh, transformed and renewed constantly by Scripture. And, and it's, it's really interesting when you think about what Paul was doing as he's writing to the church in Rome, you have uh, really a, a uniquely diverse experience. Uh, not only because Roman culture in of itself was diverse, but because you now have the coming together of two, at least two different kinds of people groups, Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul's instructing them how to live life together. That's, that's why we're going to read Romans 12 every single week, because we want to get it into our minds. What does it look like for us, people who have all sorts of different experiences in life and backgrounds in life, what does it look like for us to live together as followers of Jesus? And Romans 12 is very clearly presenting this picture to us, right? We talked about this last week, just the, the imagery or, or the picture of this one another, right? Uh, and, and not only that, but whenever Paul says you, it's not a singular you. He's not just saying you as an individual. He's saying you all as a group. This is what life looks like together. And so our, our lives are to be shaped and formed first and foremost by Scripture, by God's Word. And so first point, the Scriptures are powerful. The scriptures are powerful. And what I want us to see here is, and we're going to be, we're going to be bouncing all over the place now, okay? We did Romans 12. We're moving on. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, I, I want us to see that the scriptures are powerfully produced. So jump over um, to 2 Timothy, a passage that most of us are probably familiar with. So 2 Timothy 3 and Listen to what Paul says. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy. And he says this. Uh, let's, do, let's just start in verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now listen which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the, the power in, in this text is, is multifaceted. At the very least, I want us to see this, that Paul is communicating to Timothy, and he wants him to understand that the Scriptures... Now, now, keep in mind here, what is Paul referencing when he says the Scriptures? Yeah, the Old Testament. He, and so the Bible that he has in mind is, is what we call the Old Testament. And he says that it's that story that's able to make you wise for salvation. That, that this Old Testament, this Old Covenant, is communicating a reality about the person and work of Jesus. And so there's, there's power in Scripture. Right? Also, Paul communicates that, that Scripture is powerful and that it's uh, profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, training in righteousness, that we as a people would be complete and equipped for every good work. Now jump over also to, to 2 Peter. Just a couple books towards the end of your Bible. 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, says this. 
It says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So scripture is, is powerfully produced. And, and so 2 Peter and 2 Timothy both communicate this reality to us, right? That, that the scriptures were produced by God speaking through men. Now we're going to circle back around to this in a little bit and, and talk about it a bit more. But for now, our understanding of how scripture came to be is that God spoke through humans. So I think a, a reality that we can embrace about the Bible is that it is a very human book. And we need to understand that God spoke through men and he allowed their uh, personalities, their influences, and their characters to come through how they were writing. That's why if you read Paul and then read Peter, you'll notice they're very different in their style uh, and in just in how they communicate. And then you read Hebrews and it's very different. And you read Revelation and it's very different. Why? Because it's different people writing in the ways that they write. Just like if we were to read three or four different people's writing, it would look like three or four different people's writing. And so this is how God communicated. He communicated powerfully through the Holy Spirit, and, and men wrote down these words. I think this is important for us to understand in the sense that when we approach the Bible, we're not approaching a magical book. Uh, in other words, when, when we think of the authority of Scripture, we don't need to think of a book that was dropped out of heaven with all of the words just there. God, God worked in and through the experience of, experiences of human beings to produce this book. Okay? And what we see is that Scripture is a, a powerfully produced redemption story. And we live and we trust that God completely guided that story to where it is sufficient for us for salvation, ultimately. Right? And so for those of us who are willing to receive it, the scriptures are then sacred writings. I love how Paul communicates that to Timothy. These are, these are sacred writings. And so I think that's a question for us to ask ourselves is how, how are we approaching scripture? It's like, oh yeah, it's just you know, another book. Or, or no, these are sacred writings writings that are meant to be formative and transformative for my life. Okay? So they're powerfully produced. And then second, we see that they are powerful in their abilities. We've already touched on this a little bit, Romans 12, uh, transformation, constantly being transformed. Paul talks about uh, equipping and rebuking and reproving and encouraging, right? If we want to really encourage one another, Scripture is powerful in its ability to encourage. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 12, tells us this. It says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's, that's powerful. 
Those are, those are extremely powerful words that they have the ability to, to cut and to expose and to reveal and to transform in ways that other words don't. And the question then that we have to ask when it comes to Scripture is, will we let it form us? Will we actually allow these words to be transformative to us? And this is so essential because as we've talked about numerous times before, we need to understand that we are always consuming information. We are always constantly being formed by and into something or being, being formed by someone. It's not a question of, of if, it's, it's a reality. Something is shaping us. We are consuming information that's, that's affecting the way that we think and the way that we live. And we unashamedly want it to be the Bible above anything and everything else, right? And so we have to understand this reality that we are being shaped. Um, John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he references St. Augustine or Augustine. I'll probably say it both ways. It's the same guy. Um, And he says this about Augustine. He says, St. Augustine wasn't always a saint. He spent decades of his life as a kind of fourth century playboy chasing sex, money, and power. In his confessions, uh, which is kind of like a personal memoir, basically, of Augustine's, uh, in his confessions, he said this about his slavery to lust before he became an apprentice to Jesus. He said, quote, by servitude to passion, habit is formed, and habit to which there is no resistance becomes necessity. By these links, a harsh bondage held me under restraint. And then here's how Comer puts it. He says, quote, the simple mechanism of mind to thought to action to habit to character to either slavery or eternal life is at the heart of every apprenticeship to Jesus. In other words, what we think, the little thoughts that we have on a day in and day out basis are ultimately creating habits and ways of being and thinking that form us. Like, it actually matters what we're consuming. And so we have to take into consideration what are we dwelling on most. And and our encouragement would absolutely be that we would want to be a people dwelling on Scripture most. And so the whole point of this is to just show that We prioritize scripture because this is what we need to have our thoughts transformed by. Scripture is the powerful foundation for transformation. And so we understand that with scripture, the power of scripture, we understand that this is how we fight as followers of Jesus. So much of the language that we see in the New Testament is uh, it's warfare language, it's fighting language, that we're, we're fighting not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, John Mark Comer's book is called Live No Lies, and it's basically a, a, a manifesto for how to not believe lies, but to live the truth of who we are as followers of Jesus. And, and it's, it's through transforming how we think and what we think about. And so we, we combat lies, uh, but what we often fail to realize when it comes to scripture, is that we are wielding a powerful weapon that we must be trained to use. And so this is, this is where it kind of gets interesting as I was thinking through this. There's a part of me, no, there's, there's a big part of me, that wants everyone in here to read the Bible. 
I want you all to read the Bible. But there's a part of me that doesn't. I don't want any of you to read the Bible. (laughs) And the reason is this, is because of the reality of its power. And so this this takes us into our second point, where we see that not only are the scriptures powerful, but they're also incredibly complex. I think any of us have had this experience. Like, how many of you have walked away from reading anything in the Bible kind of just scratching your head a little bit? Yeah? Uh, even, even the most trained among us often read the Bible and walk away perplexed a little bit. I'm reading through Genesis again. Genesis gets me every time. Like, except for Genesis 1 through 3, the rest of it, I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this, Lord. Like, what, are we, what, is, what is this? It's a complex book. So when we talk about the authority of Scripture, what we're saying is this, is that we believe Scripture to be the most powerful and true source of wisdom for our lives. And we want our minds to be thinking regularly through what Scripture might speak into any given situation. But to do this well requires learning. It requires training. It requires equipping. Scripture is powerful. It's regularly referred to as a sword. I I think that's important imagery. Think about a sword. We don't just hand a sword to anyone because we know that a sword can cause great damage, carnage. Uh, I I can't help but think of my kids. I don't even like it when they have sticks. So yesterday, I walked up the stairs, and one of my kids, I'm not even joking, had a stick inside the house shaped like a sword. And I was like, what is that doing in here? And he was hitting the couch. I was like, stop it. <laughs> like, all the time. I don't even want him to have a stick, let alone a sword. But the, the beauty of a, a sharp object is that it can cause great damage, carnage, yes. But when used with precision... It can also bring about great healing. <laughs> and so we want to learn how to use Scripture properly. And so this is, this is what I want us to work through here for a little bit, is how do we work through Scripture properly? First and foremost, I think we need to understand the damage that can be done when Scripture is handled incorrectly. So just a, a couple more texts to help us here. Back to 2 Timothy. Um, in, or in chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, yeah, verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now listen, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, here's the implication of rightly handling the word of truth. It can then be handled wrongly. We have to assume that if if Paul is making certain to teach Timothy and to encourage Timothy rightly handle the word of truth, we have to assume that it's also being handled wrongly or inappropriately. What what does that wind up leading to? We'll jump over again to Peter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're actually almost done with all of the the flipping back and forth, but listen to these words of Peter. 
I, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages from Peter. He says, in, uh, starting in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So Peter, who's writing scripture, references Paul, who wrote scripture, and Peter says, you know, Paul is a little difficult to understand. To which every time I read, I'm like, have you ever read Peter? <laughs> Peter's far more perplexing than Paul, in my opinion. But listen to what he says about this. Um, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter's, Peter is, is giving this warning that there are, there are some who take the scriptures and twist them. They're ignorant and unstable, and they twist them to what? To their own destruction. So in other words, we must be careful in how we use this book. Uh, referencing uh, one more time, I just thought of this back to what um, Paul says to Timothy. He goes on there and he says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. So he, he references specific people and says they've, they've twisted the scriptures. They've, they've used them inappropriately and they've wind, they wind up shipwrecking their faith. So, I don't know about you, but I don't want to shipwreck my faith. Does anyone want to shipwreck their faith? Yeah, no one's going to raise their hand. What then do we need to know to begin studying Scripture in a way that doesn't shipwreck our faith? So here, here's what I want us to work through. I want us to understand that there is a proper way for us to read the Bible. It is a powerful book, and it is a complex book. And so there are some things that we need to know before we open it and just start reading it. And that's what we are going to try to work through here. Um, five things in particular. Okay? First, we need a posture of humility. We must approach the Bible humbly. Um, a lot, of, a lot of what I'm going to reference here is language that we have learned from the Bible Project. The Bible Project has been super, super helpful, uh, and several other really good books. Okay, so a lot of information coming our way. But one of the ways in which we understand Scripture is that it is what is referred to as meditation literature. You know, uh, when we talk about meditation literature, we're not talking about some kind of weird form of like emptying your mind meditation, but rather filling your mind and, and specifically, filling it with Scripture. Uh, this is what Psalm 1 says, right? Uh, blessed or flourishing is the person who's meditating on the word of the Lord. That person is, is strong, like a, like a tree that's planted by streams. And when the wind comes and all that stuff, the tree doesn't get blown over. Right? That's what Psalm 1 is communicating to us. 
And it's, it's this meditative literature for a lifetime. Can you hear that? Literature for how long? A lifetime. What that tells us is that we, as followers of Jesus, will be studying this book for the whole of our lives, and there will, we will never fully get it. It is, it is intended to be that way. It's intended to be gone to and read through over and over and over again, meditated on, thought through for the entirety of our lives. And this takes great humility for us to accept. It takes great humility to accept that the Bible was designed for us to have to study, not just read, but to study repeatedly, repeatedly, over and over and over again. And I think we struggle with this. Like, we are, we are fast-paced, like, 30-second attention span people. And so to focus on something for a lifetime sounds terrifying. Uh, it, you know, it, it, when, the, when I was first reading through the Bible, uh, when I worked at Terry's Heating and Air Conditioning, I was the guy who just, I would take a break at 10, and then at noon, and then at 3, just so I could read my Bible. And so I'd, uh, and I was... I was probably wielding the sword inappropriately in a lot of ways. But I'd take it out and read it, and I was with the guy, and he saw that I was towards the end of the book, and he said, well, you're almost done. What are you going to do with it when you're done? And I was like, I'm going to read it again. And he was, he was literally blown away. Like, he did not know, he did not have a category for reading any book at all, and especially more than once. But this is how Scripture is designed. It's meant for us to chew on for the entirety of our lives. Uh, furthermore, we need help with it. Like, are, are you all willing to embrace the fact that you need help with interpreting Scripture? I hope you are. Uh, we desperately need help when it comes to understanding what Scripture is teaching us. Uh, and it takes great humility to accept this as well, right? That we need mentors. Uh, but this is what Paul told Timothy. Uh, he said there in, in chapter 3, um, let's see, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So, so Paul is encouraging Timothy, like, remember the people who taught you Scripture and taught you how to read Scripture. Does anyone know who taught Timothy how to read the Bible? His grandmother and his mother. Let that be an encouragement to you ladies. Timothy, like there's two two books in the Bible named after Timothy. He was taught by ladies. We need mentors in our lives. Um, In regards to humility, here's what Ray Lubeck says. Uh, I'll reference this a couple times today. He wrote a book called Read the Bible for a Change. If you want a, a helpful book that's going to give you some good, clear framework for how to read the Bible, we highly recommend this one, okay? And here's what he says. He says, quote, no amount of advice on Bible reading technique can compensate for hearts and minds that are not willing to humbly follow God. Such readers simply will not receive God's word in the way that it is intended. And so how, how are you, how are we reading scripture? Are we reading it in such a way to sort of fit your fancy and make your opinions correct? Or are we living it in such a way so as to be submitted to it? 
Uh, I've always liked the phrase, and maybe you've heard the phrase, that uh, we're not to be people who master the Bible, but are to be mastered by it. That our, our lives are to be lived in submission to, underneath of Scripture, that we may live lives that glorify God. We also, when it comes to approaching Scripture with a posture of humility, it's more than likely that we need a paradigm shift, just a complete shift. And again, thank you, Bible Project, for this. Uh, they recently, just so you know, they recently released a podcast series, I don't know how many episodes, nine or ten episodes long. Really great series. I highly recommend it. If you have an iPhone, uh, you are privileged and chosen, and you can download their app. Uh, if you don't, sorry. Um, the non-chosen, I guess. I don't know. They're, they're working on Android or, or, or whatever, but you can still access it through podcasts. Anyways, this is what they say about the overall paradigm of Scripture and how we should read it. Quote, it's all too easy to treat the Bible like a reference book, a resource for deriving theological truths, moral principles, or encouraging sentiments. While the Bible does provide those things, if we primarily interact with it as a reference book, we will miss the bigger story it's telling. Reference books only impart information. Wisdom literature, like the Bible, is designed to form certain kinds of people through convictions that become a part of their character. And that's really important because whether we realize it or not, we have, um, in many ways, we have been taught to regard the Bible as a reference book. Meaning, I have questions about life, I'm gonna go to the Bible to find those. Or I have an argument with someone at work, I'm gonna go to the Bible to figure out how I can beat them. And so I'm going to find my, my theological truths, and I'm going to find specific verses that match my theological understandings and truths, and then that's how I'm going to use Scripture. But if we use it that way, um, here, or me, let me finish, or we use it as just a moral guidebook. The Bible exists to just teach me what's right and wrong. Okay? Now, it, in, it has all of this, but that's not the only or primary way in which the Bible is to be understood. It's primarily meant to be understood, as they say, as wisdom literature that we meditate on for a lifetime. And as we do so properly, within the proper framework of how Scripture is supposed to be read, it will form and shape our character and our thinking in the way that it is intended to. But there's rules that we have to follow in order to do this. So what are some of those rules? Well, going back to this here, number two, We see that the Bible is a library, not a book. It's a library, not a book. Now I know that when we hold this in our hands, we feel like we're holding a singular book. But we're holding an entire library of books. What we know about the Bible is that it is is many books with many different genres of literature, and each of these genres deserves its own approach in how we read it. In other words, the Bible is not all read the same. I don't get to just open it and bring one, one interpretive method into reading it. Okay? Um, just so if anyone wants to know what this library consists of, uh, the Bible contains of 60, it contains 66 books 
39 of those are in the, what we call the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament can be a bit misleading in how it's worded. I think it might be better to refer to it as the First Testament because it's not outdated. Does that make sense? It's not like, oh, that was then. We're now in the new. We should just focus on the new. No, we really, 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 really need the old or the first. Okay, so we have 39 in the First Testament, and then we have 27 in the New Testament or covenant. And here is, here's how uh, Dan Kimball, he wrote a book called How Not to Read the Bible. I also highly recommend this book. Okay? Uh, and he says this. He says, quote, our best understanding of the history of its writing is that it was written by more than 40 authors. That's amazing. Right? 40 authors from various walks of life, including shepherds, farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings. These human authors lived in different time periods and had different life experiences, education, perspectives on the world, and different personalities and temperaments which are all reflected in how and what they wrote. The Bible was also written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over a time span of more than 1,500 years. So I hope just by reading that, we are able to understand, yes, this is a very complex book. 40 different authors, all sorts of various backgrounds in education and life experience written over a time span of 1,500 years. Now, Lubeck, in his book, goes on to say this. And I love this. It just kind of uh, goes off of what Kimball said. He says, quote, the Bible is one book, yet it is made up of many different books. It is unlike the Koran or the Book of Mormon, each of which are the work of only one human author. It is also unlike an anthology of completely different authors because the many different biblical authors were still writing with the unity of purpose, characters, plot, and system of faith. Now listen, the human authors of the Bible living centuries apart from one another reflect a cohesiveness and coherence that has no parallel in world literature once again, the Bible stands alone. So one of the most beautiful, unique components, and this is, this is where, again, we, we come back to the authority of Scripture, that it is God-breathed, that it wasn't of, of men in and of themselves, but that God, through his Spirit, guided men along in the writing of Scripture. And what you have is over 1,500 years worth of one singular story and it has a complete cohesion, unlike any other book. Like, you would think that if, if it took 1,500 years to write one story, uh, it might divert in some areas, right? But as we read Scripture, we see that it is very cohesive in the one story that it is intended to tell over this span of time. Okay? Within Scripture, there are three major types of literature that I want us to begin to understand and recognize, okay? And there's there's many more within this when we talk about genres of scripture, uh, but these are the three basic basic ones that will help us to begin to see what we need to see. So the first is this, narrative. The Bible is 44% narrative. And what a narrative is, is a text, it's a text that makes the point primarily by telling a story. So uh, when you're working through Genesis, for example, that's a narrative. We're working through the Gospel of Matthew. That is a narrative, primarily. 
So it's making its main points through telling a story. 44% of the Bible is narrative. The next major type of literature that we have in the Bible is poetry. And 33% of the Bible is poetry. And what you have with poetry is this. It's a text where normal language is modified to intensify its impact. Various poetic devices are used that affect how sentences are structured, and there is usually a high concentration of figures of speech or word pictures. So uh, poetry is the Psalms. is primarily uh, poetry. You also, most of our Bibles, uh, modern translations will kind of indicate where you have poetic language and that they change the way that um, the type, what's, I don't know, typeface or, it's not the font. They don't change the font. They change the, the, the way that it looks, right? Does that make sense? I don't have any sort of language to communicate this. <laughs> is it typeface? Is that what the word is? Do you know what I'm talking about? Look, what did you say? Yeah, the typography, I don't know. Look at the Psalms and you'll notice that it looks different than Genesis. Do that, okay? And you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and you can also look through like, um, a lot of the prophetic writings, you'll see how the, the prophetic writings uh, contain a lot of poetry. And one of the best ways that I've heard poetry described is that it is intended to get us out of our ruts. Right, so we, we, we tend as humans to have just our, our patterns and, and kind of the same rut that we drive in every single day. What poetic language does is it's intended to shock us out of it. Uh, so so within, within poetic language, you have other subgenres. One example is like apocalyptic literature. So uh, Jesus uses apocalyptic literature in Matthew chapter 24, for example. And so what we understand about Matthew chapter 24 is it's not intended to be taken literally. It's language that's intended to shock you and, and to get you out of your rut in the way that you're living life and to call your attention to something in particular. So that's, that's what poetic language does. And the Bible is 33% of that. Um, the last major type of literature in the Bible is discourse. And this is, this is what we all love. Dis I love discourse. 23% of the Bible is discourse. And discourse is a text that presents a logical sequence of ideas. So think letters of Paul. Paul's letters, uh, Peter's letters, most of the letters in general are forms of discourse. They're forms of teaching. Uh, but what we also need to understand is that when we're reading Scripture, and again, this is just kind of embracing the complexity of it, is that with any given book of the Bible, you're going to find all of these. You're going to have narrative, you're going to have poetry, and you're going to have discourse. And so our responsibility as students is to learn how to recognize them because they're going to change the way in which we approach that particular part of Scripture. We tracking? Here's how... Here's how uh, Lubeck puts this. He says, quote, one of the most important factors in how well we interpret the Bible is whether or not we correctly identify which type of literature we are reading in any given passage. If we misunderstand the text at this level, the rest of our study will also be flawed. And, and that makes sense for, for all forms of, lit of literature, even, even today. Okay, so... You all know that if you open a poetry book, you're going to read that differently. I know that might sound funny. Some of you read poetry, some of you don't. You're going to read poetry a lot differently than you're going to read a novel, right? Because they're, they're different genres of literature, and we intuitively understand that they're supposed to be approached 
differently. Um, we ought to approach internet articles different than we approach books or so on and so forth. Does that make sense? So this is intuitive stuff to us. Our tendency, though, is to forget it when we approach Scripture. But Scripture has these rules as well that we're intended to follow, and so we must learn how to study. And, and, and here's the thing about this. You might, you might think to yourself, man, can you, can you just keep teaching us? I would love to. But you also need to do some study on your own. That's why we reference these guys and gals. Because there's a lot of really helpful resources out there. And at a, at, a, at a base level, I would just encourage you to just pour over the Bible Project stuff. Like, it will, it will really begin to give you some framework that is helpful for how, how you read Scripture. Okay? Uh, number three, the Bible was written for us but not to us. It was written for us but not to us. So, John Walton is a particularly an Old Testament scholar. Uh, he's done really a lot of great work on Genesis in particular, and Genesis 1 through 11 to be even more specific. And here's, here's what he says. He says about the Bible as a whole, quote, we believe the Bible is written for us, that it's for everyone of all times and places because it is God's word, but it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. And I think this is where it starts to kind of push and, and rub us a little wrong, I think, uh, or where we kind of start to be like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But it's true. <laughs> the Bible was written to different people of different times. And so in order for us to properly understand and interpret the Bible, we need to learn how to read the Bible's words on the Bible's terms. This means part of the work that we have to do is learn how to enter their worlds. We have to learn how to enter the world that, that Paul was writing into. We have to learn how to enter the world that, uh, that Jesus lived in and that the gospel writers were living into. Because we all know that, that we have a world around us where we, can, where we can say things or make reference to things that will just make sense to us. Here, I, I, I think around here we could say something like, I don't know, this is what comes to mind. If I say I'm going to go up south, that's really confusing. <laughs> but most of us understand what I mean by going up south, right? Where am I going? The South Hills. I, and, and for the most part, I don't have to give any explanation there. Uh, but someone from out of state, if I said, well, let's go up south, they'd automatically be confused because south is rarely up. Right? Th th does that make sense? And that's, and that's how scripture was, it was written. It was communicated in a time in which people understood what was being said. They didn't need explanation because it was written to them at that particular time. And so in order for us to actually understand what it's communicating, we have work to do. And that's why there's good, I mean, there's just myriads of good ref reference books, commentaries, resources that we now have access to that will help us begin to understand the culture in which the Bible was written in. Um, the point is this. We need to learn how to read the Bible's words in the Bible's terms, understanding that though it is for us, it's not written specifically to us. And it makes a big difference in how we interpret it. Fourth, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. 
Here's what we're saying with this. So much damage is done when we just read a verse. Yeah? Any experience with that ever? (laughs) Verses are not to be read on their own. Uh, Many of you have probably heard this. Context is king when it comes to interpreting Scripture. In other words, what we're supposed to do is understand this. We're supposed to understand that a verse is set in the context of a paragraph, which is set in the context of a chapter, which is in the context of a book, which is in the context of the overall storyline of Scripture. And we have to understand these contexts if we're going to properly understand verses. So just give you one, just one example, because uh, I think many of us, if we've been in the church for any length of time, we've probably heard this. Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, just listen to what it says, and you'll be like, oh, yeah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? Like, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. It's a, it's a coffee cup verse. Like, we want to put that on coffee cups and encourage people. But when you read the verse before it, it's a little bit less encouraging. Because right? here's, here's what it says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 10 automatically changes what verse 11 means. And it, and it actually makes it, I think it makes it better is what it does. Because what, what Jeremiah is communicating to the people of Israel is that God is, God is going to bring you out of exile, but what needs to be understood is that his promise isn't going to be fulfilled for 70 years. Right? And so a lot of damage can be done when we just take verses out of their contexts and try to apply them to things that they were never intended to be applied to. I was One great example, growing up, I was an athlete, and so uh, inevitably I wrote Philippians 4.13 on all of my athletic gear. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Home runs, steel bases, the whole bit, all of it. Has nothing to do with sports. Right? And actually, it has, it has nothing to do with any sort of success. It has to do with enduring suffering. Context makes a big difference. And so as good students of the Bible, we don't get to just read verses. We have to read in the light of context, okay? Um, Fifth, all scripture leads to Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. That, again, thank you, Bible Project, that it is a unified story that leads us to Jesus, and so this is how Jesus understood scripture. When Jesus was uh, about to ascend into heaven in Luke 24, uh, he takes some of his disciples and he walks them through uh, his Bible and tells them how these things were pointing to him. And so Jesus understands the story of scripture to be about himself. And so the, the, the key for us to learn how to read and study scripture properly is understanding that it is a unified story, very complex, but unified, leading us always to Jesus. Um, oh, I don't know if I have time to do this. Um, okay, take a picture. <laughs> I, I emailed the guy who, who uh, there's a picture for this, and I emailed the guy who wrote the book, yeah, Kimball, Dan Kimball. Hopefully he'll send me the picture, and if he does, I will post it on CCB. But 
what this does is it helps us to understand that the Bible is, is it's six acts, okay? And so we have this, this framework and these movements of the storyline. And if we can begin to understand the storyline, we'll begin to see more clearly what the Bible is doing. Okay? And, and part of what it's doing is it's intended as we, so for example, as we walk through the first few acts of Scripture up to the point of Jesus, the first three acts of Scripture are, are meant to cause us to want something more. Like they're, they're not setting up pictures of, of morality. Again, just read Genesis. Like this is a great example. Genesis is not giving you moral commands. Just read it and you'll be like, oh, good. Because <laughs> it's weird and full of all sorts of really jacked up stuff. But what it is doing is it's communicating to us a story which is meant to cause us to long for a king to long for someone better. And so all all along, the story is pointing us to Jesus, and it finds its fulfillment ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And and who is Jesus? King. Jesus is the all-satisfying king that no one else can measure up to. Jesus is the one who fulfills and completes the story, and Jesus is the one who we're anticipating will come back and completely complete the story. So, I hope you see that it's complex. And I hope we also can see that by knowing a little bit of what not to do, we're better equipped to know what to do. And in just embracing these five things that we talked through, that's a a good foundation to help us along the way. And then just embrace the fact that this is going to take a lifetime. Just be okay with it. Uh, and you'll be amazed as you begin to, to work through this. You'll be amazed at what you have learned in five or ten years from now. Okay? Final point for us. The scriptures are cherished. The scriptures are cherished. Um, I don't have time to go to it, but Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, I think, are just some of the best examples for us of this. Or in the Psalms, you just see this picture of how the psalmist cherished God's word. It's a lamp for our path. It's meant to be meditated on day and night. And this point is key here when it comes to the cherishing of scriptures because what we're getting at is that we're embracing traditional orthodox teaching in practice. In other words, What we're doing when we say that we cherish scripture is we're joining ourselves up with thousands of years of church history who has also cherished this book as the foundation for their lives. And this is important because uh, more and more what we're going to be finding is people who want to get outside of orthodox and into heterodox. Now, those are some big words. All all they mean is this. Orthodox uh, means what has traditionally been taught and understood. Heterodox ignores that okay? and, 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 and kind of suits itself for its, its own teaching or its own understanding. Um, here, here's another way that tradition uh, is communicated. I was listening to a podcast this last week on the inspiration and authority of scripture, uh, and he's an Australian theologian. His name is Michael Burden. He says this. He says, tradition is finding out which mushrooms are poisonous without finding out the hard way. I love that because, and here's why, 
We, we as a culture, tend to hate tradition. We, we tend to be historical, um, well, let's see, we tend to be historically ignorant. Uh, we tend to be chronological snobs, as C.S. Lewis would say. Where for some reason, we think that we have things more figured out than history does. But the church has historically, though there are, yes, numerous issues in the church, absolutely, but the church has historically, since her birth, believed consistently the same teachings. And so it's why, it's why we're, we're doing things like the Apostles' Creed. Because what, when, we, when we communicate the Apostles' Creed, we're, we're partnering up with the historical, orthodox teachings of the church. That's why we're working through catechisms, because we're, we're learning what the church has historically understood the scriptures to teach about who God is and who humanity is and how we're to live in accordance with scripture. And so when we say that we cherish scripture, we don't just cherish them ourselves, we cherish them with a rich history of people who have cherished them behind us. And, and that's important when it comes to our interpretation of Scripture as well. Because we want to ask, well, how is, how is the church historically, traditionally taught this? So one example might just be marriage. We, we believe that, that marriage is between, and this was taught in Scripture, that marriage is a union between, it's a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Why do we believe that? Well, Scripture. And not only Scripture, but 2,000 plus years of agreement in the church. Right? That there is an a understanding of what this looks like. That's just one example of many. But we partner up with this people, the church, followers of Jesus. And we cherish Scripture as the people of God have for thousands of years. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we continue to walk in the traditions of those who have gone before us, thus not making shipwreck of our faith? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us to embrace uh, the authority of Scripture in our own lives and that it would shape and transform us, um, help us to be a people who live joyfully and obediently in accordance to your word. Uh, we pray this in your good name. Amen.